Cindy, invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John's Gospel, chapter 17. Thank you for good music this morning, and thank you men for coming. When I saw them with their white shirts on, I thought, we need one other guy with a black shirt on, we could have been like a triple-stuffed Oreo. Is there a volunteer? Casey's raising his hand, you don't have on a black shirt. Well, I know some of you have been wondering, we, uh, we finished the book of Galatians last week, and that's what we've been looking at each Sunday, and so you've been thinking, what are we going to talk about this week? Is he going to just continue on into another, into Ephesians or something? And my wife even asked me yesterday, what are you preaching on tomorrow? Well, we've been married 36 years. So as soon as she asked the question, she knew what my answer was going to be, because my stock answer when people say, what are you going to preach on tomorrow? I'm going to say, on the stage. My kids have gotten so tired of that. Then they say, no, what are you going to preach about? I said, about 25 minutes. And I've picked this passage of John for a couple of reasons. One, in Galatians, we've seen so much. What Paul was talking about is this battle between the flesh, the old nature, and the new nature. And the battle of the Judaizers that were coming to these churches in Galatia, this region of Galatia where these churches were, and saying the cross is good, but it's not enough. You need to add works to the cross, and we've, we've looked all summer at how that's not true. Anything you add to the cross becomes an enemy of the cross. And so I thought, I want to kind of follow up on that teaching with some teaching on, okay, so how are we going to live the Christian life? We're not going to live it in the flesh. We're going to live it through grace, by faith. That's how we got saved in the first place. The other reason I picked this is a few years ago I preached through the book of John, and I finished with chapter 17 around verse 11. So I'm picking up there, and we're going to look at some instances before the cross, and then next week we're going to look at some teaching after the cross. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. It starts in about chapter 13, where Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us more information about the Last Supper, but that's the occasion, this Passover meal that Jesus is having with his disciples. John doesn't mention much of it. He mentions all the teaching. And who better than John to tell us what Jesus taught us, taught them in the upper room just hours before he's going to be arrested. It's really his last word before the cross. And why is John a great guy to teach us that? He was there. He was an eyewitness, a firsthand account of what Jesus taught. And I think it's amazing to see this prayer now toward the end of Jesus' teaching He goes to the Father in prayer on our behalf. And he speaks first about the disciples, and then he turns to those who would follow, including us. And really four things that I see him pray in this passage. One is for God's protection. Jesus knew he was about to leave the world, and all the hostility that had been directed towards Jesus was going to come towards his followers now that he's not in the world himself. So he prayed for protection. He prayed for unity. He prayed that his followers would be united even as he and the Father were united. And then third, he prayed for joy, that his followers would experience joy. And then last, that they would be set apart. They would be sanctified. So let's look at the first part of this prayer in John chapter 17. Let me read verses 11 and 12 to start us. This is Jesus, again, in prayer to the Father, saying, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. 
While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, and isn't it comforting for us to know that Jesus was concerned enough about his followers, initially the 11 disciples that were left after Judas, but he's also concerned for us. And that is, how are we going to live the Christian life in the world? And so he's praying on our behalf 2,000 years ago, knowing that we would come after. And so he prays, and he says, first of all, I'm no longer in the world. Now, he's speaking a little bit prophetically because he still was in the world for a few more hours. It was just a matter of time before he would be crucified, buried on the third day, raised, risen from the dead, and 40 days later ascend into heaven. So he's not totally taken from the world yet, but he's already shifting, transitioning from an earthly ministry to a heavenly ministry. What's Jesus' heavenly ministry now? Well, one primary thing that he does, according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he is our advocate with the Father. He's praying today on your behalf. Just like he did 2,000 years ago, he's praying today for you. And so his prayer is significant. And so he says, Father, I come to you. Prayer is not designed to change God's will, but it's a call for the fulfillment of God's will. So that's what Jesus does in this prayer. And he calls him an interesting title, Holy Father. It's the only time that phrase is used in Scripture to apply to God the Father. I come to you, Holy Father. The first thing he asks for in this section is keep them in your name. Literally, keep them. Literally, guard them by keeping your eye on them. Watch over them. Guard them. Why? Because Jesus is going away. He's been protecting them up to this point. But he says, Father, as I leave, I'm turning the responsibility and the opportunity over to you to guard them. Keep your eye on them in your name. The word name means authority or character or power. So what Jesus is saying is, Father, I've, I've guarded them by your power, but now I'm turning them over. You guard them by your power. Isn't that great to know that in the world we live in, the power of Almighty God is watching over and guarding you? While I was with them, well, then he says, according to the name you've given me, that they may be one, that they may be united, even as we are. There's unity in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, let that be an example. Just like that, I pray that they be united. In fact, they're about to be embroiled in ministry. They're about to, in just a few days, you know, 40 days from now, Jesus is going to say to them, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. He's going to say to them, wait till the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and then you're going to go out in ministry. And he's calling us to the same thing. And it's important that they be one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. I kept watch over them by your power in their name. I guarded them, and not one perished except. The word perish means to be utterly lost, to be destroyed fully. Isn't that an interesting word? Earlier in the Gospel of John, John tells us the reason Jesus came to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that anyone who believes in him would not what? Perish. And Jesus says, I've kept them. I had 12 disciples that you gave me, God, the Father, and I have watched over them. I've guarded them. But one, so that Scripture would be fulfilled. This was prophesied in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms on a couple of occasions and elsewhere the son of perdition, who was never truly a follower of Christ, is going to betray Jesus. And his name is 
Judas so that scripture will be fulfilled. But other than that, none have perished. And that's good to know. As a child of God, I will not perish. Why? Because he's promised me nobody's going to snatch you out of my hand. Jesus said, I am the Father of one. What the Father has given to me, you're safe there. And so he's turning them over to God the Father for their protection. And then he turns to us. He's turning to the disciples, but we're included in this part of the prayer, verses 13 through 16. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So the next part of Jesus' prayer, he says, I come to you, and I'm speaking these things in the world. In fact, he's speaking these things out loud in the presence of his disciples because he wants them to hear what he's praying for them. He wants this to be a lasting comfort for them. So, Lord, I come to you while I'm here at this present time, and here's what he asked for, that they may have my joy. I've said this before, but joy is not the absence of sorrow. Jesus, it said, for the joy set before him endured the cross. There wasn't any happiness in the cross, and yet there was joy. Why? Because Jesus knew he was fulfilling God's plan. And Jesus knew the ultimate result of the cross would be that you and I could have eternal life. Our sins would be paid for, and we'd have eternal life. So he uses this word joy, but he uses the word my joy. He says, Father, I pray they would have the same joy that's within me. We looked at this already in Galatians in chapter 5. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. As a child of God, there's these things that God is bringing into your life. Love, joy, peace, patience. It's joy. So let me ask you something. Do you have joy? I'm not asking about happiness. Falls right around the corner. Happiness can be determined by who wins on Friday night or Saturday. We're happy. Our team won. How about joy? Joy is not about external circumstances. Joy is about the presence of God in your life. Do you experience joy? Have you ever lost your joy? David did. David committed the sin with Bathsheba. He disobeyed God. He knew he was wrong. It took him a while to finally get it. But then in Psalms 21, he said, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. You ever, you ever just been in a funk? Where it's not about your salvation. It's not about whether you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior or not. It's just for a little while. You just aren't walking in the joy of the Lord. And God kind of gets your attention. This happened to me when I was youth pastor at a church in Gastonia. Walked into a banquet that I really didn't want to be at. You ever had that happen? <laughs> Why are you going to this? Because I have to. I'm on staff. It's, it's part of my job. And we were running late. And I walked in the room, and people started ragging me about being late, asked me if I'd already stopped at McDonald's and that kind of stuff. We sit down at this table, and, of course, being on staff, where do I have to sit? In front of everybody. So now everybody knows we're late. I was just ticked off. I didn't have any joy. I was working for God, but I wasn't working out of an overflow of God's joy working through my life. We sat at the table. I was just mad. The pastor's wife got up to introduce the musical guest, and she said, we got some bad news. The group that's supposed to be here is not able to make it. I thought, oh, great. They came up with an excuse. 
She said, but we have a treat. We have this group of sisters who are going to sing. And I thought, oh, I've heard these girls before. And the treat is this. This was a Valentine's banquet. They didn't have anything else to do the day before a Valentine's banquet, and that's who you got. And it's, you're calling this a treat. This is what's going through my mind. And then they told me, these sisters, I thought, I've heard them before. I don't much care for them. Are you getting the picture? That's when I felt the tap on the shoulder. That's when God kind of asked the question. I didn't hear an audible voice, but folks, God was there that night. And here's the question he asked me. Where's your joy? You know what these ladies started doing? They started singing praise songs. And God got my attention. I went back the next day and just started looking up how many times the word joy occurred. We have people here from Parkwood. They know what I'm talking about, right? Do you remember the sisters that I'm talking about? <laughs> Y'all might have been at that banquet. I'm telling this story and they realize we got members of Parkwood sitting here. I started looking up how many times the word joy occurs in the Old Testament, and it's a bunch, and it means things like a battle cry, a shout of excitement, a shout of incitement. And I wasn't living that. And God got my attention. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. If you're a child of God, He's going to bring joy across your life. But we've got to understand it's His joy. It's not based on the circumstances surrounded us. It's not based on whether you had to be a banquet you didn't want to be at. You can still experience joy. You may not be happy, but you can experience joy. And joy is so much better because happiness is fleeting, folks. Happiness can change with a phone call or a bad meal. But joy is the presence of God. And so he's praying that we would have his joy and that it would be full. Literally means crammed overflowing. God doesn't want you to have just a little joy. God wants you to have all of it. To be overflowing with joy. And you know what? That impacts the rest of the world around you. I've given them your word, Lord. God had spoken through prophets in the Old Testament. God's now speaking through his son. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them. You ever feel like the world hates you? Maybe you feel like the world don't understand you. You ever realize you're not from around here? As a child of God, you kind of stick out like a sore thumb sometimes. Anybody here born and raised in the South? I grew up in Georgia. People from other parts of the country come here and say, I love your accent. I'm like, I don't have an accent. This is the way people from around here talk. Now, when I'm in other parts of the country and, and walk into this restaurant in um, San Diego, and I ordered something, and the girl just started laughing. She said, would you say that again? I'm going, what? But then we asked for sweet tea. She said, sweet tea, what's, what's that? So I got her back. At the end of it, she said, would you like ketchup with that? I said, ketchup, what's that? I was preaching in Chicago to a group of students, and I, I slipped up and said, y'all. And I didn't know I said it. It's just part of my language. And they started laughing. I said, what are you laughing about? They said, you said y'all. Then they said, are you going to say fixing? I said, well, I was fixing to. So there's times I realize I'm not from around here. And so I'll go into places and try not to speak because I don't want to, like, set off alarms. But that's the way you are as a child of God. We don't fit in quite right. And so people hate us. You know part of the reason they hate us? 
Well, part of it is they hated Jesus. They hate the message that makes them uncomfortable. So they hate us. Have you ever felt that? Yeah, we feel that at times. We feel that in the world we live in. And what is comforting to know is Jesus knew we would experience that. He's praying on our behalf. He did 2,000 years ago. He's praying today on our behalf for that, our advocate with the Father. But we're identifying with Christ. The world hated Christ. And so he warned his disciples. In chapter 13 of John, or 15 of John, he said, verses 18 and 19, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So we're hated at times because they just don't get it. They don't understand us. And then he says this. He says, I pray not that you take them from the world. I mean, humanly speaking, isn't that what we kind of wish? As soon as you get saved, we just go to heaven. <laughs> What's the problem with that? How are other people going to hear about it? So the ministry you're called to requires us to stay in the world. But Jesus says, I don't ask you, Father, to take them out of the world. He also doesn't ask to take us away from people that hate us. He asks God's protection in that. But he says, I ask you to keep them from the world. So he's praying that God would keep us from acting just like the world. If you want to avoid the persecution in the world, one way to do it is just act like everybody else does. And God will convict you. If you're a child of God and you're acting like the rest of the world, God's going to convict you. He's convicting them of their need of a Savior. He's convicting you because you're living wrong. And so Jesus says, I don't pray that you take them from the world. I ask you to keep them from the world. Don't take them out of the world. Keep them from being just like the rest of the world. And keep them from the evil one. We have a very real enemy. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Don't isolate and don't assimilate. Don't just hang out where you never face anybody that's in the world because then you can't be a witness for Christ, but also don't assimilate. Don't become just like them so that you don't stick out. And then last, where it gets real personal, verses 17 and following. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. So the last thought is, Father, sanctify them. What does that word mean? It means set apart. Make them holy. Set them apart. How? In your truth. That's how God does the ministry of sanctifying us. It's a, it's a process. You're justified the day you come to faith in Christ. But God begins a work in you that he promises to complete. He's sanctifying you. He's setting you apart for himself. And it's because of his word. As you've sent me, I also send them. And Jesus says, I'm sanctifying myself on their behalf. What's he saying? I'm setting my part, myself apart. And what he was setting himself apart for is in a few hours he would be arrested, tried, and crucified. 
on the cross. In the same way that in the Old Testament, the priest, before they could offer a sacrifice of an animal, they had to cleanse themselves. It was that picture of sanctification, of consecration, of cleansing. And so Jesus says, I do that on their behalf. But I'm asking you, God, that you would do that in them, that you would sanctify them in your truth. And then I love this. I'm not just asking these on behalf of these people listening to me right now. I'm asking these, this request on behalf of those who are going to believe in me through their word. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Pentecost in a few days where 3,000 people are going to come to faith in Christ in one day. But he's also talking about us. He's praying for us. We are who he's praying for because we have believed based on their word, the testimony of these followers of Christ that has been passed down to us. Now we have responded. Jesus is praying for us. And he's praying that we would all be one, united, again, just like he and the Father were united. You know what I discovered? What unites us as believers is not some of the things that churches try to unite around. I've seen some churches, I walk in and the big trophy cases are at the front, and I'm like, this church is a softball-playing church. There's nothing wrong with softball, but it seems like that's what united them. We're not going to be united around our favorite college football team. We're not going to be united around our favorite food. But if we're united around Christ, you know what I've discovered? The closer I get to Christ, the closer I get to other people who are also getting closer to Christ. Kind of like a big bicycle wheel with spokes. And there's a hub. If the hub is Jesus, if the hub's something else, if it's softball, if it's crocheting, if it's hamburgers, none of those things are wrong. But if that's what's uniting the church, that can ha- if it's the preacher, if that's what's uniting the church, what happens when you don't have a hamburger? What happens when the preacher retires? Goes somewhere else. If that's what the church was united around, then you're not going to be united anymore. There'll be disunity. But if it's Christ, then all those other things fall into place. So what's my responsibility in that? My responsibility in that is to get closer to Christ. And as I get closer to Christ, I'm going to be closer to other people who are getting closer to Christ. So that's the prayer of Jesus, that we would be united as he and the Father and the Holy Spirit are united. And why is that so important? It's because the world's pursuing unity, and they realize it's futile. And the world is also looking at us. Jesus said this, they'll know you're my followers by your love for one another. For you to be effective in ministry, and that's what Jesus is saying. He's called you out. He has sent you to the world. For you to be effective in ministry, you need those four things I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. You need God's protection. Well, he's promised it. He's guarding you. He's watching over you. You need God's unity. We need to be united in Christ. You need God's joy. If you're not walking in the joy of the Lord and you start telling people about Jesus, you know what they're going to say? Man, if that's what being a Christian is like, I don't want any of that. (laughs) No, thank you. And the last thing you need is God's sanctification. He is setting you apart. He's doing a work in your life to make you more like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for that truth. And God, I pray as Jesus prayed for men and women in this place.
that they would walk in a constant awareness of your protection. That you're guarding their heart. As they submit to you, they're safe. Yeah, the world's going to hate them. There's going to be hostility at times. But they're safe in Christ. I pray for unity. Lord, I pray for unity of churches represented in this place this morning. That we would be united around Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. I pray for joy. I pray the world would see the presence of Jesus fleshed out in our lives because of joy. And Lord, I pray for your sanctification work. That you're setting us apart for the ministry you've called us to. And I pray all of this in Christ's name.